1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're doing this chapter in two parts, this week and next week, the first 34 verses today. I think the most significant question any of us could ever be asked, by some distance, more significant than will you marry me or do you accept this job offer, the most significant question is, did Jesus Christ rise from the grave? Did Jesus rise from the grave? Is Jesus alive today? The most significant question with the most dramatic consequences, more determinative than any question you could ever be asked. Over hundreds of years, the values and the opinions of society has changed and evolved. You know that's true. Things believed today which weren't believed 50 years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. If you'd have gone back 20 years ago and said to the average person in the street, what do you think would be the most terrifying question a politician could be asked in 20 years' time? And you suggested, what about this? What is a woman? I think they'd look at you and be like, what are you talking about? We know that the values and the ideas of our society forever change and evolve. That's always been the case. But no society has, outside of Christ, ever believed that when someone dies, they are then resurrected. Right? It has been accepted across every society, across every age, that death is final. But it is on this issue, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, whether or not Jesus is alive today, whether or not he was raised again today, it is the foundational, the primary, the central question and the central issue that we have to deal with. Who cares, in a sense, what the Bible has to say about anything controversial in our society today? If Jesus isn't raised from the dead, if he isn't, why would anyone take offense at Christianity if Christianity is based upon the idea that someone really died once and then was really resurrected and is still alive today? However, if indeed the resurrection is true, if Jesus truly did die, and if Jesus truly was raised again, then everything that we read about in the Bible needs to be read with a real sense of humility because everything is determined by this issue. Everything is. So I'm just going to throw it out again. Was Jesus raised? from the grave did he rise hallelujah let's read this passage together 1 Corinthians 15 and the first 34 verses now I want to make clear for you brothers and sisters the gospel I preached to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand and by which you are being saved If you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, and here's the issue he's addressing, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain. And so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. But, as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. Afterward, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father. When he abolishes all rule and all authority. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. For God has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything is put under him, it is obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. When everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will be subject to the one who subjected everything to him, so that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what will they do who are being baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people being baptized for them? Let me just quickly explain that first, because I'm not going to get the chance to deal with it properly later on. The Corinthians were baptizing people on behalf of those who had died. Now, Paul's not advocating it, but he's like, if there's no resurrection from the dead, why are you doing that? I mean, what's the point of it? So that's the 
the comment he's making. Firstly, he's, it's not something that we do. It's not something that Paul did. It was something the Corinthians were doing wrongly. But why would they even do it if there was no resurrection from the dead, which some have questioned? Let's carry on. Why are we in danger every hour? If I face death every day, as surely as I may boast about you, brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus our Lord. For if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus as a mere man, what good did that do me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Come to your senses and stop sinning. For some people are ignorant about God. I say this to your shame. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for sending your son into this world. That he took on flesh. That he became like us. What utter humility. And we thank you that, Lord Jesus, you lived a perfect, blameless life. The life that none of us have lived or could ever live. You lived on our behalf. And you went to the cross as an innocent man. And at the cross, you bore our sin. And you paid the penalty for our sin, for my sin. And the most heinous sins. And you did it as our substitute. And we thank you, as we've heard already today, you completed that work that you dealt with our sin, that you dealt with death. We thank you when you cried out, it is finished. That spelt for all humanity the ultimate victory against evil and sin in this world. And we thank you that though you were buried, and though you were buried for three days, you rose gloriously from the grave. That death could not hold you down. Death could not defeat you. That you're more powerful than death itself. And that today, Lord Jesus, in heaven, is a man who is God. And who seats, who's seated on the throne and reigning on high and sending his spirit into our hearts. The same spirit that raised Christ from the grave lives within us. And Holy Spirit, rouse in us today praise and adoration and obedience to the name of Jesus Christ, and save people from their sins today. We pray this in your name. Amen. Paul is now dealing with yet another crisis point for this church in Corinth. What a journey we've been on with this church. I mean, what a catalog of error. What a catalog of immorality. Total chaos. And it's fascinating to me that he comes to the final point of this letter and he now deals with the biggest issue. The biggest issue is that some in the church were beginning to question the resurrection. Don't really think it's going to happen. Doubting the resurrection, questioning the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as I said earlier on, all the teaching of the Bible and all the teaching of Christianity is... Is, is pointless if the central core message of Christianity is wrong. And so he's dealing with this and he is beautifully and wonderfully stating gospel truth for us. And so we're going to do nothing clever. We're just going to go through what he says. 
and listen to the emphasis that he puts. He starts by immediately speaking about the gospel. I want you to follow along with me in verses 1 through to 4. He's speaking about the gospel, which he preached. That word preached, he heralded. He came to Corinth and he heralded. He, he declared the gospel message in this town. He told the crowds that were gathered there, there is brilliant news for you to hear. It's the best news you will ever hear. I'm going to tell you about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who is God come to earth in flesh. Jesus Christ who lived this perfect blameless life. I want to tell you about Jesus. And so he preached Jesus where he went. And he declared the victory of Jesus over man's greatest enemy. Sin and death. And he declares this message to them. They received this good news that this God man came and died and incredibly was resurrected from the grave. And he's alive and can be known today. He didn't subsequently die again. He was ascended. He ascended into heaven, into glory. And right now in heaven is one who has glorified flesh isn't that amazing right now in heaven Jesus Christ glorified reigning over the creation poised and ready to return he declared these things in Corinth and it was on this basis he says here you received this gospel this was what dealt with your past. So look at the tenses, if you can see it. Received, you've taken your stand, present tense, and your being saved, future. In other words, this gospel is holistic for your whole life. It's not like the gospel message is simply the, the entrance. Like, oh, we must preach the gospel. We've got to preach the gospel for those who haven't responded to Jesus yet. But for the rest of us, we move on to other things. That's crazy. He's like, no, that's crazy. He said in, in, in chapter 1, uh, no, chapter 2, verse 2, he said, I resolved to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. The gospel was the message. It was the message that he lived in and that he taught that has changed their lives, that has given them purpose in life, that makes every moment of their lives meaningful, this gospel which has brought meaning to their suffering and to the, the challenges of life that they face. You're standing on this gospel. And not only are you standing on it, but you're being saved by it as you continue to cling on to Christ. Because surely a day is coming when God will judge the earth and judge humanity. There will be a judgment. And this gospel will save you and keep you secure on that day. So that you do not have to enter into the fires of hell. But enter into everlasting paradise. That was the gospel that he came and brought. And then he gives this very simple, distilled explanation of the gospel. And I want us to look at the order of what he brings. Verse 3. I passed on to you. As most important. Right, that's an important phrase. The most important thing. Right, what's the most important thing I, as a preacher, can pass on to you? The most important thing. I don't think 
a lecture on time management is the most important thing I can tell you about today. I don't think there is any subject more important for me to speak to you about today than this, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That is the most important message ever spoken in any church at any period of time. Any other message is secondary in its importance to the primacy of that. And look at the ordering, Christ. Firstly, first word, Christ. The gospel is all about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Utterly Christocentric, Jesus-centered. The gospel that he came to Corinth with and which has come to us is about Jesus Christ. And it's not like just the Gospels. It's not like just the New Testament. The whole Scriptures, the whole Scriptures speak about Jesus, are about Christ, are about Him. They're about this wonderful God who has come into this world and to have relationship with men and women. It's about Christ. It's Christ-centered. And that Christ, this King, this Messiah, this Anointed One, died for our sins. Paul didn't just say, I resolved to know nothing among you except Christ, but I resolved to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. So we must hear about the death of Jesus Christ. We need to hear about him and his crucifixion. We need to understand that he truly died, that he truly died. And that he died for our sins. Brothers and sisters, we sang it. It was my sin that held him there. It was your sin that held him there. It was the Apostle Paul's sin that held him there. God came in the person of Jesus Christ to die for our sins as our substitute Let the reality of that really sink in. That's how much God loves you. That's how precious you are to him. Don't listen to the lies that says anything otherwise. Am I a sinner? Oh boy, you know it. Are you? Have you done things you're ashamed of? I have. Sometimes it's, it's actually, do you know what? It's It's okay to think about, and Paul takes us into this place, if I were still in my sins, if they were still this stain on me, how can I live like that? When God says to me, I can wash you clean and cleanse you from all of that perfectly, and he might say, that's too good to be true. But it is true. And, the, and, and God, by his spirit, has been speaking to us as his people about this from the moment we gathered today. The stained jumper. 
And it's so easy to go, oh, my stains, oh, my stains. And you know if Jesus walked up to you bodily right now and looked you in the eyes, you know he would see you for who you are. And unless you've been washed by his blood, he sees you in your sin. But this message, which is so glorious, is he says, I've come to deal with that. So Jesus isn't coming to you in a judgmental way. God isn't coming to you today and going, you rotten person. That's, that's the speech of God's enemy, actually, who comes to accuse you. But what Jesus comes to bring is life and freedom and healing and cleansing and washing. No water can cleanse your soul. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can do that for you. He died as our substitute according to the scriptures. He was buried. This wasn't that he just passed out and fainted. No, he was buried in a tomb. Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. He was buried there three days. Buried. As those who loved him grieved and wept, having seen his scandalous and horrific death and crucifixion. For three days, he was truly buried and dead. But he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Imagine that gospel. Oh, what a beautiful scene. As Mary goes to the tomb and she finds it empty. And she is confused and perplexed. What's happened? Where have they taken the body of my master? Where, where have you taken him? She's grieving. And that beautiful sound she heard when she heard her name. Mary. She turns and she saw Jesus alive. What? You're alive? You're alive? How can this be possible? People who die don't come back to life. Jesus reversed it. This is why it's good news. This is why it's glorious, spectacular, wonderful news. And all of this according to the scriptures. You've got to understand, it's not like 2,000 years ago, people kind of had this idea that resurrection was possible. This has never been something that the average person expected to happen. This was utterly astonishing. Though it was spoken of, Isaiah 26, verse 19. Your dead will live, their bodies will rise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust, for you will be covered with the morning dew, and the earth will bring out the departed spirits. Resurrection there, prophesied. Daniel 12, verse 2. Many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life, and some to disgrace and eternal contempt. These things were spoken about through the Old Testament scriptures. We've got a couple of explicit references to resurrection there. But as you go through the whole story of the Bible, over and over we're finding this gospel message being told through the lives of the patriarchs, through the lives of the Old Testament characters. Let's just think about a few off the top of 
top of the head. We've, we've got constant barrenness in the Old Testament. Abraham and Sarah, unable to conceive, well into their old age. And we have this phrase, though your womb is dead, life will come. We have this miraculous new birth. We then have these scenes of impossibility. We have little David going up against the massive Goliath. And all the armies of God are terrified and quaking in their boots. You can't possibly defeat him. And he's being mocked at and laughed at. And he goes to Goliath who mocks at him. Who's this? Am I some kind of dog? Who's this little guy who's coming to fight me? We have a picture of impossibility. And then we have the power of God. We have Gideon in a field. The least in his clan. Goes to army against the great Midianites. Don't even use their sword. They just blow trumpets. And the whole army scatters. As he goes through the, if you think of the, of course, the Exodus, slaves, the blood of the lamb, the sea parted, they're brought through. Right, the whole story of the Bible, right from the beginning, is about Christ, is about the gospel, is about how God is going to deal with the impossibilities of our death. And how he was going to do it in a miraculous way, which everyone was going to say, impossible. In the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve sinned, they're told they must leave the garden unless they reach out and eat fruit from the tree of life and so live forever. What tree would have fruit like that? What tree could you and I eat from that would result in everlasting life? What fruit? And then in Galatians 3, we're told, cursed is he who is hung from a tree. And Jesus in John 6 made it explicit, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will die. But he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood will live forever. What is the fruit? What is the tree? It is the cross of Jesus Christ. And it sounds like a very strange thing to eat from his flesh. But this is what the Spirit of God enables. Your death, your soul, there needs something so powerful that it can reach into the depths of your being because you know there's something in me that I, I can't I feel like I can't help but do awful things or I can't help but think bad things. I, I need something that can penetrate so deeply and do such a thorough work. There's only one fruit you can eat that can achieve that. That's why we have the bread and the wine, to point to the true spiritual meal that Christians receive from the cross of Christ as we eat that fruit. Have you eaten that fruit? Have you eaten that fruit? Have you received that kind of power to cleanse your soul from sin? As you can and one of, the reason, one of the reasons why this is so unbelievable is that the invitation is so simple. Believe in me. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I want to invite you today. Believe in Jesus. Believe in him. Believe in him. 
And then what Paul goes on to do is he gives evidence. And he, he, he mentions a number of things here. And, 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 and this is Paul going, look, not only did you receive this gospel message that I brought to you, but there's evidence. Like, you can go and investigate it. There are hard facts here. We're not asking you just to some kind of hocus-pocus, airy-fairy. There's, there's hard facts to this. And he says, he appeared to Cephas. That's Peter. Then he appeared to the 12. And then he appeared to over 500 people. Many of them are still alive today. And then he appeared to me. What's, what's he doing? He's saying, look, if you want, you can go and check it out. 500 people would quite quickly be able to say, no, that's complete nonsense. He definitely died. He appeared to over 500 people in one, on one occasion. The a New Testament scholar called Richard Borkham says, when, a, when an academic is writing an article, they include footnotes when they're making a point. The idea of footnotes is you can follow the train of thought and you can go and investigate it further, just to make sure I'm not making this stuff up. This is, what, this is, this is an, uh, uh, an ancient way of using footnotes, by naming people. If you don't believe this is true, here, go and investigate it. These things are widespread. Do you know there's no single historical event? Listen to this. There's no single historical event, event better attested than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There isn't. There's, no, there's nothing, there's not been more written about it. There have not been more people speaking about it. There's, as a historical event, the sources are endless. And then he appeared to me. Paul says, he appeared to me. This next evidence. And he says of himself, I was a persecutor of the church. This tormented Paul. Many would say it was the thorn in his flesh that he spoke about, this memory of having killed Christians. How do we know Jesus is alive today? He, he's saying, I'm, I've met him. He appeared to me. Paul saw him on the, on the road to Damascus, and Jesus comes and says, why are you persecuting me? Paul's life before meeting Jesus was about destroying Jesus and destroying the faith. And then he met him and everything changed. His whole life changed. How do we know the resurrection is true? We have evidence. Evidence historically. How do I know the resurrection is true? I can see in front of me today people who know and love Jesus Christ I can see in front of me today people who sing songs to Jesus and pray to Jesus and hear Jesus speak to them how do I know Jesus is resurrected because he revealed himself to me grace Paul says so whilst we'll say yes there are hard facts that you can go and investigate there's also a miraculous dimension to this too. Where our hearts are open to receive Christ and to know him. I know I've said this several times before, but I think it's such a helpful illustration. In the line, the witch in the wardrobe, Lucy goes through the wardrobe and she enters into Narnia. 
and she experiences this miraculous place. And she comes back and she tells her siblings, you'll never believe what happened to me. And they go to the wardrobe and they find it's just a wooden panel. There's nothing here. What are you talking about? And then they go back several days later. And then suddenly for them it's opened up too. And then they walk through. I was once blind. But now I see. I see. I see. And for some of you that moment could be now. Where... The kingdom of heaven is open up before you. It's a work of grace. It's a work of the Spirit. So that the Spirit of God that raised Christ from the, from the grave, the same Spirit, here today to bring resurrection to your, your soul, to bring life by the grace of God. The radical transformation of the disciples is another sure sign of the veracity of the resurrection. They were terrified when Jesus was terrified, cowering, hiding. And then they see Jesus, and they are bold and courageous, transformed. And these ones that are mentioned here, Peter, James, and Paul, Masses of historical evidence that says they continued to declare the name of Jesus right up until they were martyred for it. If it was just an idea, they go to their grave declaring he's alive and I know him. They were utterly transformed. And then what Paul does is he he begins to entertain the notion, well, okay, if the resurrection didn't happen... If the resurrection isn't true, then you realize what the consequences are. If Christ was not raised from the dead, if there is no resurrection, then your whole faith is futile and pointless. The whole thing is utterly pointless. I mean, utterly pointless. And it's not only that, but we're false witnesses. We're lying about God. If Jesus wasn't raised from the grave, we're lying. We're bearing false witness about God. And if Christ has not been raised, you're still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If Christ is not raised, then all of my shame and all of my sin is still on me. And if Christ was not raised, if Jesus is dead and truly died and never was resurrected, then there is no hope for those that you love who have died. They're dead. That's it. And this is it for you and for your life. If Christ is not raised, this is it. This is your life. And this is the life that we have. and, And many atheists will say, yep, that's it. That's just it. This is it. It's cold and it's harsh, but that's it. How bleak. Where's the justice? Where's the justice for those who've been abused? Where's the justice for those who've suffered genocide? Right? Think about it that way. How unjust, how cruel, what a harsh world this would be. 
if there is no resurrection from the dead. And we may be sat here thinking, yeah, but we're Christians. Of course, we don't question these things. I met with a, I actually met with a, a church minister, a Christian minister, a number of years ago. And he said to me, I don't know if I believe in the resurrection. And as soon as we go light on the resurrection, why would we believe anything else the Bible has to say? And why should we be surprised that we find across the church today the unraveling of truth? Which is the consequence when the church stops preaching the gospel. This is the first and the most important message, but everything else is held up by it. So if you're saying, how has the church got so confused? Why is the church in this state today? It's not just because we haven't taught well enough on marriage, or well enough on gender, or well enough on whatever other issue you might want to raise. The issue actually doesn't start with we've not done well teaching on those things. No, we've not done well with the gospel. The first and the most important thing hasn't been central in the church. And the consequence of that is everything unravels, and the church either becomes a lecture hall, a museum, a nice place to go to at Christmas. But we preach the gospel because we want people to know God and to know everlasting life with him. Because hell is real and heaven is real and Jesus is going to return. And I will stand before him and I will have no hope unless Jesus truly conquered my sin. If the resurrection is not true, guys, we're to be the most pitied people in the world. Paul says, what a waste of time this all is. However, verse 24, but as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What does that mean? It means that Jesus has risen, actually risen bodily, as I've already said, and his resurrection, his glorified body, it's the first fruits, it's the first evidence of everything else that's coming. So those of you who have been involved, and I know a number of you have, in agriculture, the first fruits of the season tend to indicate what the harvest is going to be like. If the first fruits are good, it bodes well for the rest of the harvest. Jesus is the first fruit of our resurrection. And so his glorified body, he sat with his disciples on the beach, he ate breakfast with them, he had fish. Yeah, he loves a barbecue. Like Jesus models something to us of what this new life will be like. The seed. This life is like a seed. What's it going to be like? The Corinthians go, what, what, what will it be like? What will heaven be like? What will the new earth be like? This life is much like in what an acorn is like to a, an oak tree. What a seed is to the plant. There is something of essence that we taste of now, but it's going to be infinitely more glorious and wonderful than we can ever imagine it to be. What a wonderful thing that is to look forward to. And listen to this promise. For just as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. I want to tell you that the power of this gospel goes so much further than you or I could ever imagine. Ever imagine. 
I want you to think about those in your life who you're praying for who don't know Jesus yet. Hold them in your mind. Hold them in your mind. The gospel is good news for them. It's good news. And as soon as our gospel ceases to be good news, what's the point of the whole thing? On the 7th of December, 1941, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, bombing Pearl Harbor. Winston Churchill wrote about this moment in his diaries as he'd been pleading with the Americans to join in the war effort. They had so far remained neutral, but when Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, things changed. And this is what Winston Churchill wrote on the evening of that attack. He wrote, so we had won after all. We had won the war. No doubt it would take a long time. Many disasters, many disasters, immeasurable cost and tribulation lay ahead, but there was no more doubt about the end. Being saturated and satiated with emotion and sensation, I went to bed and slept the sleep of the saved and thankful. He knew an ally was joining in the fight which guaranteed them victory. And of course, that's what did happen in the Second World War. Here's the point. We get to go to sleep tonight. And we know we're going to have battles and tribulations. We know we're going to continue to face trials and we're going to continue to have pain and difficulty. But we can sleep the sleep of the saved and thankful because the greatest war is won in Jesus Christ at the cross. And that's worth applauding. That's worth applauding. There is nothing more that needs to be done. He's done it. And his resurrection is the proof. And just as he rose again, so will you be bodily raised again if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. I want to invite the band to come and to help us respond to this glorious truth. Why don't we stand together? If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord Jesus, we confess together that you are Lord and we believe that God raised you from the dead. And we confess together that there is no God besides you. And in this world we live in of pain and suffering, we thank you for the certain hope we have of the glorious resurrection of the dead. And let us never doubt it. Let us never stop speaking it, heralding it, sharing this good news with all that we come across. We thank you 
for your glorious victory. Amen. Let's sing.